Welcome to Cliffs and Fences, the intersection of public health, policy, and healthcare. My name is Jared Ormsby, and join me as I sit down with medical professionals across the globe to discuss topics ranging from your personal health to reinventing how healthcare is delivered. Each episode is designed with the goal to make understanding health an easy-to-digest process. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing to our channel and sharing it with those you know. If you have questions or want us to cover a specific topic, feel free to email the show at cliffsandfencespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Joining me now is Dr. Rachel Gerarie. Rachel has a PhD in health systems management from BGU in Beersheba, Israel. Uh, Rachel arrived to BGU as a Fulbright Scholar in Public Health from Arizona State University, where she earned her Master's and Bachelor's in Bioscience Ethics, Policy and Law, and the History and Philosophy of Science. Rachel is a Johns Hopkins Fellow, where she seeks to further study the professional and personal responsibility of healthcare providers on an international scale in light of ethical and policy implications. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, for f- for the audience, I I brought Rachel on to talk about this paper titled "An Ethical Analysis of Vaccinating Children Against COVID nineteen Benefits, Risks, and Issues of Global Health Equity." Um, before we dive into that paper, I wanted to ask you. Many people, and for for a while, I wasn't very familiar with what a bioethicist was. Rachel, could you? Just so that the audience is up to speed, what is a bioethicist? What is their day-to-day task, and what's sort of their, um, where do they fit in the in the broader picture of of healthcare and healthcare policy? Thanks for that question, Jared. So this is a classic question: What is a bioethicist? And I think that more people today than ever, perhaps at least in my lifetime, are asking that question more and more as the COVID nineteen pandemic unravels ethical and bioethical questions. So. Most straightforwardly, a bioethicist is someone who deals with the ethics of biology and the ethics of traditionally in the American context, biological, medical and clinical issues. Um, So you have people oftentimes refer to themselves as a clinical ethicist, a clinical bioethicist, a bioethicist, or in my case, a public health bioethicist, public health ethicist. The field of bioethics really was born out of the Second World War. Um, we can talk about more later, uh, since I know that's not the topic of this podcast. Um, but as humanity sort of woke up to the potential atrocities of medicine, should humans wish to use medicine for atrocious purposes, the world decided to essentially formalize this field of research. Um, called bioethics, which is not necessarily solely focused on clinical issues, but focused on whether or not to make traditionally clinical issues, but more and more public health issues as well. The field of public health ethics was born around 20 years ago formally, um, when the field of bioethics did this shift from sort of clinical bioethics focused on informed consent, and now in the last 20 years focused more on issues of population health. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has um, brought everything really to light. So as a bioethicist, I'm not really interested personally on 
whether or not we can do something, because I believe we can do whatever we want as humans, we're very smart, but whether or not we should do something. Um, and so I think that it's important to remember that bioethicists always bring the moral and whether or not we should do set of things, should do views to a given issue and not necessarily the answers of whether or not we can do something. And this is something that has been sort of blurred um, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic as you know, bioethicists gain more of a um, platform, which is great, but then they're asked questions like, do mandates work? Yes or no? Can we vaccinate children? Yes or no? Of course, as a bioethicist, I can answer these questions, but it's not what I'm trained to do. I'm trained to help the discussion and policymakers decide whether or not we should take these decisions. Um, so that's a long-winded, short-winded answer um, to what a bioethicist does, and everyone has a different background and a different answer to that, but that's my answer. Well, that's a great summary of it. Um, that's how that's how I understood it. I again, I only only until recently really caught up to speed about what what it really was. And um, as I read more about it, I realized how important it was. Uh, but on the on the other hand, I also realized how little we're talking about it. I mean, there's there's not much conversation, at least publicly going on about uh, should we I mean, of course, like you said, we can, I, of course, I can stick a vaccine in a child, should we though? Uh, and that's what your paper discusses. Um, before just a just another follow up question I had for you is you seem that uh, you, ha you have found this um, this niche for so for vaccines. Um, and I think if I understand it correctly, increasing uptake among mm -hmm. uh, healthcare providers, how did you how did you find that? I mean, it's a very specific uh, area to concentrate yourself. What 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 attracted you to that? Yeah, so that's, <laughs> yes. So thank you for that question. It's, it's really this topic has guided me through all stages of my academic professional life. Of course, I'm a very early career scholar. And so when I say my professional life, I mean my um, academic degrees until this point. I'm completing my second year of my postdoctoral fellowship and currently on the job market. So I can't say my long research career, but through this topic of vaccine uptake of healthcare workers, um, I've investigated sort of my I've not only investigated, but like sort of created my sort of niche within public health. Why I got interested in it in the first place was like anything else in life, sort of coincidental. Um, as an undergraduate at Arizona State, I took this course that was advertised to undergrads as, you know, a course that is called the Global Classroom Experiment, um, in which, you know, almost 10 years ago now, um, which it was very forward thinking. It's hard to sort of remove ourselves from, you know, the Zoom world we're living in today. But almost 10 years ago, I was taking this course, which was focused on designing a model for how to have students from all across the world in one classroom. So I was with students at Arizona State at ASU, and we were in the same class as students in Germany at a university called Leifana University using video conferencing technology. So the university invested in the special room and had all these fancy softwares to be able to, you know, record us in the classroom and record them in their classroom in Germany and have sort of like an experience that we're all in one classroom. So today, obviously this feels very obvious. Like we do this every day with Zoom. You just put a camera on anyone, anywhere and use Zoom to sort of tune into the same place at the same time, no matter where you are in the world. But at the time, it was like an experiment, literally. 
And the class was uh, really focused on issues of sustainability. And as I, we had to you know, do a research project for the end of the course, and I was in the group that was assigned the topic of whether or not the world and society is ready for the next influenza pandemic. Um, you know, once again, this was almost 10 years ago. So a few years after the swine flu pandemic, um, sort of a couple years before what would become the Ebola epidemic. So there was interest in pandemics and epidemics as a topic broadly, but nowhere near what it is today, because, you know, two years had passed really since the uh, H1N1 pandemic and the H1N1 pandemic, though it disrupted society didn't just disrupt society on the level that, for example, COVID is. So it was a forgotten but familiar topic and sort of a nice topic in a university setting to unpack issues of ethics and biology and public health and decision-making. But by no means was it the hot topic at the time, like you said, how did you even get to thinking about this, Rachel, Um, especially pre-COVID? And so this was the group that I was in. And for over a year and a half, we came to did this research project and came to the conclusion that, you know, the world is not ready for the next pandemic. Um, Unfortunately, we were right. (laughs) I'm not happy to say that Uh, all the signs were there even then. Um, And sort of just, you know, by the by a way of, you know, convenience, but also heightened interest now that I had you know, learned a lot about influenza and infectious diseases, I turned the topic sort of into a more specific population group, healthcare workers at the time, because I was completing my master's in bioethics and healthcare workers, I found were a fascinating population in the sense that they have all of these societal and professional responsibilities that we place upon them. And yet, once I learned that healthcare workers don't get vaccinated necessarily any more or less than normal people, my mind was sort of like blown. It just didn't make sense to me. And yet there was all of this research out there showing that, listen, like healthcare workers aren't getting the influenza vaccine specifically. That's what I was researching at the time. And so then I brought for my master's thesis the ethics angle, like I did, a, my master's thesis was on the ethics of mandatory influenza vaccination for healthcare workers. It Once again, I wish I could say that, like I had this like shining light from above that told me to research the topic, but like anything else in academia, it was a combination of interest, but also feasibility and convenience. And I had like this previous research on the topic before. So one thing led to another and I you know, was towards the end of my master's, I had this itch to go study abroad. Um, But I was too much of a nerd, really, to just like take a gap year and go travel. Um, And I am still too much of a nerd to do that. In hindsight, maybe I wish um, I did. So if there's any young people listening now, please, like, if you have an itch, take a gap year, you can return to your life in a year. Um, But I combined that sort of gap year with my academics, and I applied for a Fulbright scholarship in Israel. Um, Why Israel? Because Israel was like this perfect location to study vaccine ethics, um, because Israel is one of the most vaccinated societies in the world, um, without having traditional mandatory policies um, that today we're very familiar with, but at the time, you know, only a small group of people in public health really were thinking about. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get awarded the Fulbright mentor at Fulbright scholarship and come to Israel to study vaccine ethics and policy in Israel under Professor Nadav Davidovich, who was my mentor um, at 
a place called Be'er Sheva in Israel, Ben Gurion University. And I had like the best year of my life. And like everything else in life, it was a combination of timing and, you know, convenience and feasibility um, that I was there at the same time that the CDC actually was at my university for a site check to see if the university I was studying in would be a good location for a study, a multiple year study on influenza vaccine effectiveness among healthcare workers. Because at the time, and still data on exactly how effective the influenza vaccine is among healthcare workers is subpar. Today, much better than it was seven years ago. Um, but they were interested in starting the study. And it seemed to be like a perfect alignment of being at the right place at the right time with the right people um, that I was invited to do a qualitative supplement for my PhD. I ended up staying past the Fulbright year for my PhD. Um, which was completely unplanned in Israel. So all of a sudden I was an international student for the next four and a half years in Israel, navigating all that fun stuff as well. Once again, different conversation. But at the same time that this influenza vaccine study was, VE study was happening, I was speaking to healthcare workers about really why or why not that they got vaccinated, why or they did or didn't get vaccinated against the flu. Because you could ask someone why, you can ask someone on a survey, have you been vaccinated? Yes or no. And so you learn if they're vaccinated, but you don't learn why and all of the complex histories and stories behind that decision. And so that became my PhD. I did a qualitative research study on the attitudes and behaviors of healthcare workers toward influenza. And then I was writing my dissertation. I was in the last six months of my PhD when the COVID-19 pandemic broke out. Um, and all of a sudden the relevance of my PhD just you know, literally overnight jumped. Um, I remember I applied for postdocs um, a couple months before the the pandemic broke out uh, to the postdoc I have now at Hopkins and Oxford and the ethics of infectious diseases. And I got accepted to that um, fellowship two weeks before the COVID-19 pandemic started. So there has always been a niche of people in public health and in ethics interested in these sorts of issues. Um, but by no means is the COVID-19 pandemic the reason why I necessarily went into this. I've been thinking about this for a very long time. And so that's why I think, especially on the topic we're going to speak about today, my views are a little different um, and perhaps I like to hope slightly more nuanced than a lot of the mainstream um, discussion out there on the ethics of vaccination. Um, not because I'm particularly critical of people being very pro-mandate or anti-mandate, but I'm just hoping to shift the discussion to be more nuanced and cognizant of the fact that now vaccination is such a polarized topic. And there's so much research that's been done before the COVID-19 pandemic that we don't have to start, we don't have to reinvent the wheel from scratch, right? Like the wheel has been invented. So let's apply that research to our situation at hand now. So that was a very long-winded answer, but no, don't uh, worry about it. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's fantastic because it, it does give us some context as to why uh, this this paper is so important to you, and I and I think yeah. that's great. And I like you said, vaccines, especially right now. I mean, there's there's always been like the anti-vax movement prior to COVID, um, but I think there's been sort of this um, maybe spike in vaccine hesitancy uh, because of how rapid everything 
you know, uh, was was put on the, the on society. And I think it's even more hot button for kids, right? Because, yeah, we can talk yeah. about vaccinating myself. I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. But once you bring kids into the picture, it's like, OK, well, hey, we, I got we have to make, you know, we have to make smart and, and uh, people like to make slower decisions when it comes to uh, medical decisions for their kids. At least that's how I, I view it. And so uh, hopping into uh, hopping into your research, what was uh, you and your colleagues, what what kind of was the was the tipping point where you said we need to get this paper out there? What was sort of the motivation behind it? Yeah. So early, early mid spring of last year now, so 2021, um, my colleagues and I, so Dr. Zeb Jemrazik, who is a um, clinical ethicist and physician based also at Oxford, but also in Melbourne, and Stephen um, Krajeveld, I totally butchered his name, but he is currently a PhD student, um, almost finished in the Netherlands. We were talking about how we saw these headlines about how kids are probably going to be vaccinated for COVID-19 very soon. Um, and because we are vaccine researchers and specifically vaccine ethicists, um, we took this announcement with a grain of salt and with a heavy dose of skeptic skepticism, not because we had any doubt or reason for doubt at that time that the vaccine would be necessarily harmful to kids, but also at that time, we didn't have any data showing that it would be necessarily overwhelmingly safe and effective. Because like you said, making health decisions for children is not the same as making health decisions for adults. Children are not tiny adults. That is like day one, minute one of pediatrics 101. I am not a doctor, but I have spoken to multiple pediatricians, or, you know, general physicians who say this is a cornerstone of treating kids and considering interventions for children. And so why do we vaccinate in general? Okay, we vaccinate people because a disease is viral and very, very dangerous or dangerous enough to humans and society that we need to aim to prevent the disease in general, because vaccinating and preventing the disease and the harms that would come from that vaccination are lower and overwhelmingly outweigh the risk of getting the disease itself, which is something that has been missed in, I think, the general discussion surrounding vaccines today. There's this assumption that like, because there's, I think there's been an assumption that maybe only recently I've really come to realize that People who are pro-vaccine are so overwhelmingly pro-vaccine that they forget why we vaccinate in the first place. We don't vaccinate blindly because all vaccines are overwhelmingly good. We vaccinate because it outweighs the negative benefits of getting the disease itself. And so my colleagues and I were thinking, okay, kids are probably going to be vaccinated against COVID, but is COVID really a threat to children? And so this is where the nuance in the discussion begins, really. Um, Am I going to say that COVID is not a threat to kids? No, COVID poses a degree of a threat to kids and poses different degrees of threats to different kids, depending on their individual client or patient profile. So a child who is perhaps overweight and has asthma is at much greater risk from COVID than a child who is of normal weight without asthma. And anyone who is trying to sort of remove these 
clinical definitions of importance associated with each individual child, I think, is making a grave mistake. And this is what we were seeing early on in the spring there um, then. And so we thought, like, okay, we really need to come out and say something, but say something in a way that's respectful and also cognizant with the fact that most likely vaccination of children is going to happen for a variety of reasons. Um, and it doesn't, it's, we don't mean to say that, you know, every parent should be anti-vaccination for their child. Obviously every parent makes that decision for themselves if they're in a position to make that decision. Um, ultimately, you know, every vaccine thrown away in a, in a high income country is a tragedy um, because there are many people in low income countries who are still waiting for their first dose. Many adults who are still waiting for their first dose. Um, and so all of these, you know, issues of global equity and the question of, okay, wait, does this vaccine really outweigh the negatives for children? Do we have any data on that? No, not really at the time. Um, still, we don't have great data on that. We're starting to collect more and more data. And then finally, the issues of safety and side effects. Like if, you know, something negative, a negative side effect was associated with the COVID-19 vaccine in children, I mean, this is something that we do not want to happen. It, it severely impacts vaccine confidence long-term, not only for COVID-19 vaccines for children, but other vaccines for children that are very crucial that children get. Um, and, you know, God forbid any death resulting from vaccination, um, particularly among children, obviously also among adults, but particularly among children is an awful tragedy. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, this is true for COVID-19 vaccines, but the fact that this nuance was missing at the time, and still mostly, but less so, from the discussion around COVID-19 vaccination of children really concerned my colleagues and I. And so we wrote this paper. Yeah. I'm wondering if, Rachel, I could push back on you because I've yeah. I've had some of those, I mean, you articulate it much better than I ever could, um, but I have, mm -hmm. I've had those sort of same you know, ideas and thoughts roaming around in my mind. And the pushback that I hear on it is, well, if kids aren't getting vaccinated, then uh, they bring it home to grandma and they infect grandma, which at least the way I think about it, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is, you know, too crazy, but that sort of assumes that every kid in the United States, at least, you know, in the context of the United States, lives with their grandma. And two, <laughs> it assumes that grandma isn't vaccinated. And if the idea is that the vaccine is 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 as effective as it is. What I mean, I don't want to say it doesn't matter that the kids aren't vaccinated, but does that argument have a leg to stand on? Your thoughts? Yeah, great. This is like the number one pushback to our claims, and we distress it very on very early on in our paper because one of the major motivators for child vaccination, mass child vaccination in general, is. Um, the benefit that's provided to older immunocompromised populations. So just like you said, kids are vectors of disease and um, very effective ones at that. And, you know, they can bring diseases home and then potentially expose those who are much older and much more vulnerable, perhaps, than the child. Um, although child children are also a vulnerable population, but let's say we have diseases um, that you know, could potentially kill, God forbid, grandma, but, you know, the child is completely fine and asymptomatic. And, you know, that's a tragedy. And we don't want that to happen for COVID, right? The difference with COVID is that we argue grandma has a choice to get vaccinated herself. 
the vaccine has very, 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 very low, potentially no, but very low. There's never zero in medicine, negative side effects to grandma. She gains pretty much almost, you know, 90, hundred percent, 90% or however high the effectiveness was back in the spring when we were writing benefit and protection against COVID-19. Therefore she shouldn't be worried or because she, because she has protected herself as much as she can from the virus by vaccinating herself that we don't need to burden children necessarily to get vaccinated for the benefit of grandma because grandma has the ability to protect herself. Your argument that you, or the argument that you brought up, not necessarily yours, um, is very true for diseases where we don't have vaccines that are effective for older immunocompromised populations, um, or perhaps, you know, older immunocompromised populations are unable to get vaccinated for a variety of reasons. Therefore, vaccinating children is all the more important. But that is less or even not the case for COVID at all. Obviously, you know, the situation is very dynamic, um, but we do cite in our paper data supporting that hypothesis. And what we're consider- concerned about from an ethical perspective is using kids as a means to protect vaccine-hesitant adults. There seems to be, to us, something very uneasy and unethical about vaccinating a child where safety um, risks are so much higher and uncertainty about safety risk is so much higher and poses so much higher of a potential risk in comparison to the potential risks for adults down the line, let's say. And most likely the vaccine is going to stay extremely safe for adults. And now we know probably also for kids down the line, but that doesn't mean that we should completely ignore the small side effects that we are seeing among certain groups of children um, and not engage with that nuance in the decision-making. And unfortunately people who voice that nuance today have been cast as, you know, anti-vaccine people, which is completely untrue in our opinion. Yeah. So just to wrap things up, uh, I know we kind of reaching our deadline. What are your, just before, uh, you know, it was obviously coincidental, but uh, just the day before we met, or maybe two days before that we're meeting right now, uh, uh, the the push for boosters and 12 and 15 year olds uh, was announced. Uh, your concerns about that, and and really your concerns for the future uh, now that we're we're in the new year. Yeah. Yes. So this topic has been sitting on my mind and my colleagues' mind for almost a year now, and so when I think of boosters. I think of all of the points we mentioned in our paper, but actually most about the third point we make in our paper, which is on global vaccine inequity. So the fact that we're boosting children in high income countries or boosting healthy children in high income countries um, to whom for most children, many children, most children. So the overwhelming majority of healthy children have either already been vaccinated twice or been vaccinated and recovered from COVID, which provides you natural immunity, or have recovered from COVID and therefore have natural immunity for which for some reason in the United States um, is not recognized as immunity. Um, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna get me canceled for saying natural immunity. Oh no, <laughs> just I kidding, know, just I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Listen, my co-authors and I were like, we're probably gonna be canceled for this paper, but as ethicists, we really felt that We needed to get it out there. And so when I think of boosters for young kids in rich countries, I'm just very even more concerned about 
implications for global vaccine inequity and access and scarcity. And the world isn't acting in the way that, um, you know, we should be, I think. Um, We should be distributing vaccines to everyone, no matter where they live, um, and certainly prioritizing first doses to adults in low-income countries over boosters to kids in high-income countries. So that's what's on my mind right now, but subject to change as always. Fantastic. Well, Rachel, uh, it was a blast having you on. Again, I I really do think that this message uh, is important and isn't talked about enough. And so thank you for not only the work that you put into it uh, from a scientific standpoint, standpoint, but uh, also a political standpoint, because uh, I know we joked about getting canceled, but but these opinions shouldn't be silenced. We should be able to have that nuance. Um, So Rachel, thank you so much for joining and um, best of luck with with your uh, further research. Thank you. You as well, Darren. Best of luck to you. And thank you for having me on. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Cliffs and Fences. The best way to help this show is to share it and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For podcast updates, follow me on Instagram at Cliffs and Fences Podcast or on Twitter at Jared underscore Ormsby.